0: This podcast is brought to you by EverythingVoluntary.com. My name is Skylar Collins, and this is Thinking and Doing. this podcast, I examine logical fallacies, cognitive biases, stoic teachings from masters past and present, and tips on being better at life. I hope it will be as instructive to you as it is to me in the pursuit of thinking and doing well. If you'd like to kick back a small commission from every Amazon purchase you make at no extra cost to you, please use and bookmark our special link at amazonevc.com. That's amazonevc.com. Hello, welcome to the podcast. In this episode, we're going to look at the reification fallacy, and then we'll look at the concept of groupthink. For reification, my source will be psychology.wikia, That's psychology.wikia.org. psychology.wikia.org. And it says, reification is a fallacy of ambiguity. When an abstraction, such as an abstract belief or a hypothetical construct, is treated as if it were a concrete real event or physical entity. In other words, it is the error of treating as a real thing something which is not a real thing, but merely an idea. For example, if the phrase holds another's affection is taken literally, affection would be reified. Hmm. Okay. Another common manifestation is the confusion of a model with reality mathematical or simulation models may help understand a system or situation, but real life always differs from the model. I guess, um, I guess this would be like confusing the terrain for a map, right? You've got a map of what is in theory, um, a model of, uh, a specific terrain, a specific area. And you hope that, that the, map is accurate in whatever it's trying to show you. Of course, it's not going to show you everything, right? Right down to every tree and shrubbery, but it will show you the roads. Maybe it'll show you the topography. Um, It'll color code that or something. Um, And that can be useful as far as it goes, but believing that that's all there is to the terrain, of course, would be a mistake. Okay, let me go on. It says, note that reification is generally accepted in literature and other forms of discourse where reified abstractions are understood to be intended metaphorically. But the use of reification in logical arguments is usually regarded as a fallacy. For example, justice is blind. The blind cannot read printed laws, therefore to print laws cannot serve justice. <laughs> that's uh, that's kind of funny. In rhetoric, it may be sometimes difficult to determine if reification was used correctly or incorrectly. Okay, here's some more on theory. I've, I've always, before we get to theory, there's a section here on etymology, um, and it basically comes back to the Latin, which, which means thing-making, the turning of something abstract into a concrete thing or object. The way I've always thought about it is reification is realification, right? To make, to make something real in your mind, to believe that it's real, but it's not actually real. Okay, so this is under the section theory. It says, Reification often takes place when natural or social processes are misunderstood and or simplified. For example, when human creations are described as facts of nature, results of cosmic laws, or manifestations of divine will. Reification can also occur when a word with a normal usage is given in an invalid usage, with mental constructs or concepts referred to as lit- live beings. When human-like qualities are attributed as well, it is a special case of reification known as pathetic fallacy or anthropomorphic fallacy, okay? Reification may derive from an inborn tendency to simplify experience by assuming constancy as much as possible. Okay, here's something that I'm thinking about when I'm thinking about reification to make real something that's just an abstract idea. And I try not to get political on this podcast. I save all of that for my other podcast, everything voluntary. But I think this is something that is not necessarily political, but there's a lot of there's a lot of talk these days in different ways, but also in past days, in in my opinion, more agreeable ways, of the concept or the construct of rights. Right? We like to say things like, you shouldn't violate my rights. Or, I have a right to this thing, therefore, what? <laughs> right? What, what, is being, what is being claimed? Right? Like, if we look back at the founding of America, and we look at the complaints of the group of people known as the Anti-Federalists against uh, creating a strong central government on the American continent, a lot of their focus was on the protection of rights. Right, that concept of rights, that we have rights, and I I guess in their day most people accepted that rights were were God given, right? People have also used the term natural rights, right? So you have natural rights, we have natural rights or we have God given rights. And if these rights aren't protected, then we're being oppressed. What you're doing to us is criminal if you are violating our rights. So there's this there's this concept, right, this idea that we have rights, like rights are a real thing. And it seems to me like most of the conversation around the concept of rights is committing this reification fallacy. I think that um, rights can mean a lot of different things, right? There's this sort of grand, broad application like I've been talking about, but then there's also... Me and you come together as, at least in our own minds, as equals in some sense, and we decide to grant each other certain rights to the, other, the other's person or property, right? So when I let you in in what I consider to be my house and what the, rest of the society, most of the rest of society uh, considers to be my house because I obtained it in a certain way that they all recognize, when I let you in... I am giving I am giving you a right to to be in my house, to sit on my couch, to you know, use whatever property I share with you, such as a board game. Right? So I'm granting to you what we would call rights over my stuff, at least temporarily. Right? That's kind of that's kind of what that concept means in that situation. We can also think of a bit more official type of rights such as the terms of a contract, right? Contractual rights. I'm giving you a right to my stuff in exchange for title transferred to your stuff or something. But when this, uh, when this country was founded, it was believed that rights in this broader sense were something that pre-existed any government, any state, any legal authority, any, any legal document, any constitution, any, any code, legal code. Again, the belief, I think, that was widespread was that it was that they were God-given. Obviously, that begs the question, right? Who, who and what is God and, you know, how does he give rights? But in that day, a lot of the stuff was taken for granted, right? It was just a uh, presumption. But there have been, I think, formulations or or theory about or thought about a concept of rights that does not quite Fall for this reification trap. And I'll explain to a moment why the reification is dangerous. But before I get to that, let me just say some of some of what, you know, phil- philosophers are saying today is that rights are not a positive thing, as in you have rights positively constructed that we have something, but rather a more irrational conception of rights is as a negative construct that you don't have the right over somebody else's person or or property. So in every in every instance of somebody saying, "Don't violate my rights." There's two there's two uh perspectives to see that at. There's the positive that rights are something real and that they have them somewhere. <laughs> I think that aspect commits the reification fallacy. And then there's the negative perspective that when I say something like, "Don't you dare violate my rights." What I'm really saying is you don't have a right to my person to do what you want to do to my person or my property. So I have rights turns into you don't have rights. You don't have rights over other people or their property. Now, of course, the concept of property begs the question because property is itself a certain rights-based claim. Property or, or more accurate ownership, I would say, is the exclusive right of control over a scarce resource, which begins with our bodies and moves outward towards stuff. So I think negatively constructing rights is less prone to engage in this reification fallacy. So maybe it's better to go in that direction philosophically. I don't know. But the one of the dangers, like I mentioned, the dangers with the positive construction of rights is... At some point in the last two hundred and fifty years or whatever, rights were transformed from um, I have a right to free speech, meaning you don't have a right to, to coercively stop me from speaking. I have a right to believe the religions I want, I have a right to peaceably assemble, right? A lot of these things that were encoded in the first ten amendments of the US Constitution, the Bill of Rights is as it's called. And again, these presupposed that the the existence of these rights before the constitution before any governments but it was it was always rights were always something that basically amounted to don't hurt me don't take my stuff and i'm not going to ask permission because i don't i don't have to right if you don't have the right to coercively oppose what i want to do then i don't need to ask you for permission right so when so when we set up so when, when the founders of this country set up you know the federal government, and there were state governments and municipal governments and blah blah blah, there was a lot of concern about what, the gov- what what laws could be passed and what government, which is an instrument of force, should be allowed to do to the people. And as far as the federal government concerned, and this wasn't true for, for state governments or municipal governments, they didn't want the federal government interfering in the, in the exercise of certain rights. But that idea has has morphed and changed because of the positive conception, because of the reification today in November 2020, when this is being recorded and really for the last hundred years, (laughs) people will talk about having a right to uh, decent housing or a right to a good job that pays a living wage or a right to medical care or a right to this, a right to that right? They're, they've reified this concept of rights, and now they're applying it to things that they really want. Okay, they've, they've, they've turned the concept of rights into a concept of wants. Now, it would probably be better to say, peop- other people don't have a right to stop me from buying or renting housing, quality housing. Other people don't have a right to stop me from from finding and agreeing to any job of my choosing. Other people don't have a right to stop me from obtaining medical care when I need it from people who are willing to provide it at an agreeable uh, rate, if you will. And that that would be a concept of rights that doesn't fall for this reification. But that's not what a lot of people are saying these days. A lot of people get up in front of politicians and they demand that the politicians give them what amounts to their, you know, fulfill what amounts to simply their wants. But they, they they use this term rights, and they've reified it. And that bothers me. So I'm not, you know, I won't get into why I'll just say that that's kind of how things are now. And I think I think that this is reification fallacy gone wild, right? It seems that way to me. If you disagree, you know, shoot me an email thinking and doing podcast at gmail.com. Let me know. All right, so that's reification. Now let's go on to The concept of groupthink, and we're going to use the art of thinking clearly by Rolf DeBelli. We're going to look at chapter 25. All right, so as I do, I'm going to read this chapter. They're They're not very long, and then I'll add some commentary either throughout or at the end. Okay, it begins. Have you ever bitten your tongue in a meeting? Surely. You sit there, say nothing, and nod along to proposals. After all, you don't want to be the naysayer. Moreover, you might not be 100% sure why you disagree, whereas the others are unanimous and far from stupid. So you keep your mouth shut for another day. When everyone thinks and acts like this, groupthink is at work. This is where a group of smart people make makes reckless decisions because everyone aligns their opinions with the supposed consensus. Thus, motions are passed that each individual group member would have rejected if no peer pressure had been involved. In March 1960, The U.S. Secret Service began to mobilize anti-communist exiles from Cuba, most of them living in Miami to use use against Fidel Castro's regime. In January 1961, two days after taking office, President Kennedy was informed about the secret plan to invade Cuba. Three months later, a key meeting took place at the White House where Kennedy and his his advisors all voted in favor of the invasion. On April 17, 1961, A brigade of 1,400 exiled Cubans landed at the Bay of Pigs on Cuba's south coast with the help of the U.S. Navy, the Air Force, and the CIA. The aim was to overthrow Castro's government. However, nothing went as planned. On the first day, not a single supply ship reached the coast. The Cuban Air Force sank the first two, and the next two turned around and fled back to the United States. A day later, Castro's army completely surrounded the brigade. On the third day, the 1,200 survivors were taken into custody and sent to military prisons. Kennedy's invasion of the Bay of Pigs is regarded as one of the biggest flops in American for- foreign policy. That such an absurd plan was ever agreed upon, never mind put into action, is astounding. All of the assumptions that spoke in favor of the invasion were erroneous. For example, Kennedy's team completely underestimated the strength of Cuba's air force. Also, it was expected that in an emergency, the brigade would be able to hide in the Esca- Escambra Mountains and carry out an underground war against Castro from there. A glance at the map shows that the refuge was 100 miles away from the Bay of Pigs, with an insurmountable swamp in between. And yet Kennedy and his advisors were among the most intelligent people to ever run an American government. What went wrong between January and April 1961? Psychology professor Irving Janus has studied many fiascos. He concluded that they share the following pattern. Members of a close-knit group cultivate team spirit by, unconsciously, building illusions. One of these fantasies is a belief in invincibility. If both our leader, in this case Kennedy, and the group are confident that the plan will work, then luck will be on our side. Next comes the illusion of unanimity. If the others are of the same opinion, any dissenting view must be wrong. No one wants to be the naysayer that destroys team unity. Finally, each person is happy to be part of the group. Expressing reservations could mean exclusion from it. In our evolutionary past, such banishment guaranteed death, hence our strong urge to remain in the group's favor. Groupthink is no stranger in the business world. A classic example is the fate of the world-class airline Swiss Air. Here, a group of highly paid consultants rallied around the former CEO and bolstered by the euphoria of past successes, they developed a high-risk expansion strategy, including the acquisition of several European airlines. The zealous team built up such a strong consensus that even rational reservations were suppressed, leading to the airline's collapse in 2001. If you ever find yourself in a tight, unanimous group, you must speak your mind, even if your team does not like it. Question tacit assumptions, even if you risk expulsion from the warm nest. And if you lead a group, appoint someone as devil's advocate. She will not be the most popular member of the team, but she might be the most important. All right. So that's, that's the concept of groupthink. The, I guess it would be a cognitive bias the cognitive bias to go along with the group because you don't want to be the odd man out. You don't want to be the naysayer. You don't want to be the odd duck, right? The black swan or the black sheep or the ugly duckling or whatever. So you go along. You have reservations, but you go along, right? The leader or the leaders are obviously smart people, you think, because of how they were able to even get in the position they're in. They're probably charismatic in some way. So they probably, you know, have really good ideas. Maybe some of the details you have concerns about, but, you know, nobody else is voicing those particular complaints or for that matter, very many complaints at all about whatever the plan is, whatever the agenda is. So instead of really challenging what's being said or what's being planned or what's being strategized, you just go along with it things might work out, but I think they're just as likely to not work out. And it's quite possible that some of the concerns that you had will actually be realized, and then you'll feel dumb for not having spoken up about it, right? Maybe you'll start to lose confidence, doubt yourself, and who knows where that will lead. Or maybe you'll be more confident next time in voicing your concerns, saying, look, this happened last time. I didn't say anything, but I thought it. And I just, I can't keep my mouth shut this time. I have these concerns. Let's just go over them. And if we need to modify our plan, then let's do that. If you guys disagree, then if it's important enough to me, maybe I'll, I'll leave the group. Who knows? So, I mean, I, I like the part where it talks about groupthink being evolutionarily um, advantageous, right? Your survival depended you know throughout our evolution as a species when we were living as hunter gatherers in small small tribes your survival more often than not depended on you remaining a valued member of the group and you know depending on how how you present it and how you comport yourself after your ideas have either been accepted or rejected you will either remain a valuable member of the group or you won't right so there's a, there's a heavy bias a heavy cognitive bias if you will towards going along with the group and most of the time that might be fine most of the time it might be you know small beans but sometimes in this case it was a matter of one country invading another and it going totally wrong which you know in hindsight maybe that was a good thing who knows all right that's going to do it we looked at reification and i took a long detour into <laughs> into when reification um happens in political discourse as it concerns the concept of rights. We should look out for that. And then we looked at groupthink. And of course, there are also political implications with groupthink. So I guess this was a political episode. <laughs> All right, that's going to do it. Thank you so much for listening and have a better day. Please send your comments or questions to Thinking and Podcast at gmail.com. Please consider supporting this podcast at everythingvoluntary.com by visiting patreon.com forward slash EVC or paypal.me forward slash everythingvoluntary. Thank you.